It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hey, friends, this is Andy. I want you to meet Dario Priolo. He's the CMO and demand generation practice leader at Sales Performance International. We sell high-value solutions with a long sales cycle, and there are many influencers involved. His team wanted to drive more revenue from their target accounts, but they needed a breakthrough. Well, we really had to look at dozens and dozens of providers. And when we did that, when we did our research, we ultimately decided that Engageo was right for us. Engageo's account-based marketing and sales platform enables teams to measure account engagement and orchestrate human connections at scale. Opportunities in our target accounts are up 25% and pipeline is up 30%. It's made them a lot more productive. They really now have a platform that allows multi-channel, multiplayer outreach to manage these complex relations in very large accounts. Marketing now has outstanding visibility into the most engaged accounts, and they really know where to focus their efforts much better. Head over to Engageo.com forward slash accelerate to download their clear and complete guide to account-based sales development today. That's Engageo.com forward slash accelerate. Hello and welcome to Accelerate. I'm excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Vern Harnish. Vern is founder of The Gazelles. He's a leading business coach, best-selling author of Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, and most recently, Scaling Up, How a Few Companies Make It and Why the Rest Don't as well as founder of what's now the Entrepreneurs Organization, a global support group for entrepreneurs. Vern, welcome to Accelerate. Andy, glad to be on the show. And joining us all the way from Barcelona. Yes. Oh, nice, nice. So take a minute, may I introduce yourself beyond that sketchy uh, intro I gave for the audience? Well, you know, I was born and raised in Colorado, uh, where you're based, and um, kind of grew up in the space race. My dad and I had a company then when I was in high school, and then launched the Association of Collegiate Entrepreneurs in 1983. And, you know, some of the early participants were Steve Jobs and Michael Dell and Mark Cuban. And out of that was EO. And then 90, 91, which really, Andy, kind of formulated what ended up being the, the, the book, was the curriculum I developed for that MIT program, Birthing of Giants, that I was getting ready to celebrate its 25th anniversary. They still let the old man go back and teach once a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then in 97, uh, right after the birth of our oldest, got serious and thought I'd better form a for-profit company. And that's what we've been doing since. And you talk about you, the book that you've worked with, you and your associates was in the network, worked with 40,000 companies. We have, yeah. It's Well, it's been 34 years um, at the same thing. And we've got about four, a little over 50 now that are utilizing our tools. So define, you work with, you focus on what you call high impact companies. So define what that is for people. We do. And you know, it's interesting, Andy, you know, from a marketing perspective, how things get relabeled, you know, so we called the company Gazelles, which was the original term that David uh, Birch gave to mid-market fast growth companies. Our partner, Tom Stewart at Ohio State calls a middle market 10 million to a billion um, and seems like the new term is scale-ups you know everyone talks about uh, how we need startups and there's 11,000 startups an hour uh, that are formed around the world but too few scale up and so we focus on companies in that range between about five million and a half a billion and then we've got some outliers on either side 
And so what's unique about them? You talk about scale up. So what are they? So because one thing, I mean, I've worked with a number of companies sort of in that that range, not quite as on the high end, sort of five to a hundred million. Um, you know, what's unique about them? Well, they've got, you know, Andy, they've got a unique dynamic they've got to manage. You know, if you're a small business and you're going to stay kind of a small giant, as Bo Burlingham called it, you can get kind of processes and everything stabilized. And then obviously, once you're a large company, you've got all that process in place. But, you know, as you're scaling up, you go through those kind of odd teenage years where you're growing and it can be awkward. Uh, you can you can fall backwards and you've got to get a lot of stuff in place that most of the entrepreneurs were not trained to do. You know, how do you how do you make that transition from being an entrepreneur to a CEO? And then how does everybody else in the company handle it? The other thing that's strange is you, you cross this kind of crazy point, about 70 employees where you don't know everybody's name anymore. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's where the, your culture can start to leak. And if you don't put some kind of, again, process in place to maintain that culture, it gets a little crazy. So you've identified in the book sort of four key areas that scale-ups really need to focus on. People, strategy, execution, cash. Uh, how do you arrive at those four? I, I started looking at from my sort of my sales focus and and it uh, wasn't as much about sort of sales process, execution, and so on. You're dealing more globally. Yeah. Well, you know, it lined up with a lot of the uh, research around the world. In fact, Bill Gross at Idea Lab mm-hmm. looked at the same four areas. And he found that, first of all, among the 100 companies he founded and the others he supported, all four mattered. But what's interesting, he found a fifth that matters even more. And I think it's, rep- it's, it's applicable to what we're talking about here at this podcast. And that is timing, market timing. You know, the, the market can make you look brilliant, even if you're not, and it can make you look stupid, even if you're smart. Mm-hmm. And for instance, he founded, he funded a company that was YouTube. It was just too early and YouTube hit it right, hit the wave right. And so, uh, it's critical to pay attention to the market, which by the way, marketing as a function is what we identified as the number one, uh, barrier, functional barrier to scaling up. Marketing more so than sales. Yeah, more so than sales. But, you know, a lot of folks lump those together in their mind. Uh, there, there are some important differences, but I think for our conversation here, sales and marketing, it, it's one of the things that Ed Roberts even found at MIT when he studied uh, fast growth companies that were coming out of the tech sector. Mm-hmm. Those who had somebody, one person on the team among the techies who could drive sales and marketing, they grew much further faster versus just a group of techies themselves. Well, I want to step back and think about the the timing concept you brought up is, is I mean, timing in the sense you used to sort of an accident. Yeah, but I think you could, you can look at various trends. Like, you know, I don't think it's, uh, would surprise anyone that if you're in the AI space right now or fintech, mm-hmm. you've really got wind to your back. Uh, in fact, I remember years ago, Joe Mancuso, who was one of my mentors, founded the CEO groups and even lent us his, his line that it's okay to be independent, but no reason to be alone. Joe had suggested, and I thought it was a great idea and we could do the equivalent today. He said, if you really want to see the future, study what are the new newsletters? Because before there was an industry that was hot, mm-hmm. there was magazine or trade publication. Before there was the trade publication, there were the newsletters. I think the equivalent today would be blogs. 
Right. And if somebody could do a trend on blogs and what was new and hot and growing in the blog space, I think they could they could predict what industries would be hot. Interesting. Yeah, I was just writing, writing that down. I'm going I'm to go do that. Um, you know, the other thing is demographics. You know, McKinsey came out with an important uh, report earlier this year. And they said, look, we, we used to think it was ge- geographically based. You know, we talked about the BRICS for a while mm-hmm. as hot parts of the world. And they said, that's that doesn't matter as much today as the age demographics. And between 2015 and 2030, two thirds of the GDP growth in the West is going to come from those over 60. And so there's a lot of folks, you know, focused on uh, the millennials but all the wealth is in the group over 60. And if you're not somehow or another focusing your products and services on that age group, I think you're going to get left behind. Hmm. Well, a question yeah. that sort of raised based on the previous comments you made about demographics with the BRICS and so on, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, that companies in your high impact category is, is how do they decide when to go international? Well, I think nowadays, sooner than later. Uh, because, you know, the, the challenge is since 2007, uh, with the Internet and all that, you know, anyone can sell you anything anywhere at any time. Mm-hmm. And what's happened is everyone we deal with is feeling magnitudes more competition. And so the very best defense is offense for you to pick a very narrow uh, product line like Tabasco has, the McElhaney family, and then the average hidden champion uh, these mid-sized family-owned companies that dominate niches are, on average, in 61 countries. And so what's critical is you got to get in their backyard before they get in your backyard. And it's one of the reasons that uh, we did that trip around the world many years ago and ended up in Barcelona. And because it put me six time zones, or in your case, eight time zones closer to the wild, wild east. Hmm. And I, th- I think what a lot of folks, particularly in the U.S., forget you know, we used to dominate the global economy. Now we're only about 17 trillion out of 76 trillion. And so if you're only focused in the U.S., you're leaving about 80 percent of the market behind and you're allowing your competition get a foothold someplace else and then eventually come into your marketplace. So in your processes and in the book, I mean, do you address that specifically in terms of when you're talking about scaling your processes and your people, you know, as you look at doing business globally to address the rest of this as a is that addressed specifically? You know, I didn't, I didn't address it as much as I will in the next book. Uh, but the, the short answer is follow your existing customers. That's how we ended up. You know, if I were to look at a map, I would never have picked Malaysia. Uh, in particular, Kuala Lumpur is the first country that we really went into big uh, after the United States. Mm-hmm. But we had an opportunity there. One of our customers you know, allowed us to have about a hundred grand worth of revenue the day we hit the ground. And so that's, what's most helpful is just go to your existing customer base, find out if any of them are doing business other places and follow them there. And that's worked for a lot of, a lot of our clients. So one of the trends that we're seeing in, in sales and marketing these days is a tremendous investment in automation technologies. And when you look at some of the the research, it's showing that maybe it's not really having the impact that people are expecting. 
So what's what's your advice you work with customers on how do they begin to invest in these and how do they make sure that they get the, the ROI on these investment and these technologies to drive sales and marketing? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, um, addressed this issue. And I thought, I thought, right. And that's where we kind of got our people strategy and execution. He said, you've got to have disciplined people. So the people comes first, engaged in disciplined thought, then through disciplined action. And it's only once you have figured out what your strategy is, do you want to pour on the technology? Otherwise, all you do is automate a mess. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, there is really a chicken and egg here. And you've got to figure out what is the market you're going at. You know, what's the one thing you're going to do? You know, what's the one product you're going to sell to that one particular marketplace? And then figure out what technologies are going to help you most uh, to accelerate that. And it always comes back to something, Andy, that Regis McKenna, you know, Regis was the one who right, taught but, yeah, Steve. Yeah, I knew, I knew Regis. Yeah. I worked at Apple in the early days. Oh, you did? Well, yeah. you know, he's, you know, he's the one who taught Steve Jobs and Andy Grove mm-hmm. and and all the folks in Silicon Valley. Well, you may or may not know, but I cold called him in 1983 when I was going to launch Ace, and I pitched him. I said, look, hey, you're good enough for Steve, who was doing about $2 billion at the time. Uh, I thought maybe you could help me, and he still kids me. I was his only free client he had ever had in the history of the firm, and he, he signed a young guy, Rich Moran, who today runs a university in Silicon Valley, and was a VC and all that, he signed Rich to me. And he said, look, I'm going to take you through the same process I took Steve and everyone else in Silicon Valley. And as you know, his whole thing was about influencers mm-hmm. and that power of taking a list, at, take a piece of paper around and make a list and then track that list down. And so, you know, as an example, I think one of the best examples in this last you know, year or so was his father-son team out of Australia. That first, they saw this trend. Everybody wants to eat healthier. They want to eat local. And there's a lot of folks that want to eat what they produce themselves. And they were beekeepers down in Australia. And so the problem they wanted to solve is it's not easy to have your own honey. You know, you got to kind of disrupt the bees and the bees disrupt you. And so how do they make that easier? So the father invents this thing called the flow. The son figures out how to 3D print it. So there's applying technology. You know, we're all tech businesses today. And then they did the right thing. You know, they identified a handful of bloggers that influenced about 3 million people that were rabid in this space of wanting uh, to produce, you know, uh, their own food, a little bit like Mark Zuckerberg going that year where he only wanted to eat, which that he killed himself. Right. And, and they seeded their Indiegogo campaign to those bloggers who reached those 3 million and they sold a million dollars with that $600 product in three hours. Uh, you know, by the way, they qualified to be a member of EO in three hours from startup. <laughs> then they doubled revenue the next 11 hours. And I don't know about you, but it normally takes longer than usually that. usually takes longer right? than that, yeah. Yeah, usually. And when the campaign finished, 30 days later, they'd sold over $12 million to 36,000 people around the globe. They were, they were a global company in 30 days. And I was just in Australia uh, a couple months ago. And they did a big television special on this father-son. And, you know, unlike a lot of those Kickstarter and Indiegogo campaigns, they delivered on all uh, 36,000 of those units, and they're off to the races. Yeah, I was going to say, what's but, happening to them since? 
Yeah, exactly. No, they're doing well. But the key was going back is they blended the old Regis McKenna's, hey, let's identify the influencers. The good news is you can use some technologies to really multiply the impact much quicker. Yeah. So when you're looking at uh, back in your process about scaling people, processes, and so on, is yep. what's what's the most difficult part? Is it the, the people, the strategy, the processes? No, you know what? It's it's marketing. It's um, it because see in the beginning as a lean startup, you've got to say yes to everything. And as Jeffrey Moore taught us, but I don't think a lot of people paid attention to it. You know, what got you here won't get you there. There's mm-hmm. this chasm that you really do have to cross. We call it moving from a lean startup to an agile scale up, which right. is what we focus on. You know, things like those original reference clients aren't useful in the scale up phase. And, and you, say they're not, when, you say they're not useful. They're not useful. That's one of the key things that Jeffrey found that that those early adopters, you know, their testimonials, how they're going to use the product, even their feedback isn't going to re- reflect the big enough mainstream market mm-hmm. you're going to need to scale. Right. Um, so it's good enough to get launched, but you'd better have, again, a well-functioning marketing department separate from sales. And I remember Reed just putting his finger up and he, and we're like, you know, what's the key to marketing? He puts his finger up and we're like, your finger? He goes, no, one hour a week. You've got to, you got to focus on this topic. And in fact, you know, Steve Jobs ended up, the only function he chaired at Apple and it's when it was really going and blowing was marketing. And it was a three hour meeting every Wednesday afternoon. So, and, and you need marketing. I think what people don't realize, you need marketing, not just to get new customers, but all new relationships. You need as much to attract talent. You know, one of the things in scaling up is, can you get enough people? Uh, you need it to get investors, advisors, attention from the media. All of that requires marketing. Well, and Mark Roberge in his book, The Sales Acceleration Formula, talks about the fact that, you know, oftentimes... Too often, startups underinvest in marketing. Yeah, they precisely. And so, do you have? I mean, you have a lot of formulas in in your book and so on. But do you have a formula that you recommend for your your high impact companies in terms of investment and in marketing, investment and in sales? You know, not so much a percent of revenue, any kind of formula like that. But you know, we're big fans of David Merriman. Scott David's a good mm-hmm. friend of mine in mm-hmm. his sales and marketing books. Yeah, he's just done and, the show. Yeah. And, you know, he gave me, I think, one of the best pieces of advice that we took, which is, hey, if you want to bolster marketing, don't hire a marketer, hire a writer, you know, because or a videographer. Mm-hmm. You know, today it's pretty simple. Great nobody, content. nobody wants to be sold. Right. Everybody wants to be educated. And your ability to put together, as Joe Polish recommends, these consumer guides, these, you know, uh, you know, David talks about this company that's, you know, a leader in industrial solder. And literally, you can go to their website and get a Ph.D. in industrial soldering. And that's critical. But the problem is there's not too many people in companies that can string a couple of sentences together or produce a decent video to tell their story. And so, and it's about storytelling. So we really, really encourage not so much spending a lot of money because nobody can afford that anyway, you know, in terms of small to mid-sized companies, 
uh, it's doing the kind of things that that father-son team did in Australia, which didn't cost much. Mm-hmm. It's really just putting the effort into identifying the influencers and then getting a good, coherent message to them and getting them bought in and then letting them do their magic. And bloggers tend to be good writers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or the good um, bloggers. The good yeah. bloggers who are followed have tend to be the good writers, and that solves your problem. Yeah, well, it's no accident. I mean, David, obviously, Mark Robert is from HubSpot. David was involved with HubSpot. Uh, so, of course. Yeah, sort of consistency there. Um, so, one one barrier I see a lot of times with entrepreneurs as they're growing their company is, is what I call the fear of sales. And it's sort of it manifested two ways. One is sort of the reluctance to get out and do it, but also reluctance to invest appropriately in the right people and bring the right people on board to do it. Yeah. I mean, particularly it's that challenge. Usually most entrepreneurs, because they've got a real passion and love for their product or service, they, they don't mind telling their story and they're the original salesperson, but that's why 76% of the companies remain home-based because the barriers, how do I find that next person? that can be as excited and passionate about what we're doing, especially at that point where we don't, we haven't figured it all out yet. We haven't nailed our story. We're Mm -hmm. still out there trying to, you know, uh, you know, have a few more revolutions of the flywheel until we nail it. And that's a very awkward time. And I I see a lot of guys just give up and say, look, it's going to be me. I'm going to be kind of a one man shop or one woman shop. And you know, try to make a living that way. So it's not. It's only about three percent of the companies scale. Hmm. So when do you? Uh, that's okay. That's great statistics. So how do you know you're one of those? Um. Well, one of one of our indicators is that you're a voracious learner. That you don't think you know it all. And that you're willing to go out and, and seek help. It, it was interesting. We hosted Andy Mark uh, Cuban at our, our last Fortune Summit mm-hmm. when we were in Dallas. And you know, we had about a thousand craze scale-ups there, CEOs and our exec teams. And something we do twice a year. To, it's, a, it's kind of a love fest for scale-ups. And one of the participants asked Mark, hey, so what's the biggest mistake you made? And what did you learn from it? And we were all you know, waiting for him to, to think about. And he, and he really, he really did take a moment and he said, look, I've failed a lot, which is typical of those that are most successful. And when I looked at those failures, there was a fact pattern, which is in almost every case, I thought I was the smartest person in the room. And that's when he said he always got his head handed to him. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you've, you have to have this, this somewhat, you've got to have this this conviction, but you've got to be humble enough to think that there might be some things that you don't know and that you're willing to go seek help. And you'd be surprised that this independent streak that entrepreneurs have in some cases becomes their, becomes the barrier to seeking that help and that seeking that knowledge and continue to learn. You know, Mark, I didn't know it until I read his book, but since he was 20, he reads three hours a day. Uh, you know, wow. uh, habit Mark Zuckerberg's picked up reading a book every couple of weeks. You know, Bill Gates with his twice a year think weeks, Warren Buffett, 
500 pages a day. Larry Page, when our editor at Fortune, Alan Murray, interviewed Larry, now that he's CEO of Google, and said, hey, Larry, so how'd you learn to be CEO? And he goes, well, I read a lot. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, those are all great examples, but I'm just amazed at how many people, you know, haven't read a book in a year or listened to it, let alone, you know, 26. Well, and you gave a great example in the book about a company having a book club. Yeah, very managers. much so. Yeah, Arnie Malham um, has, a, has what he calls the Better Book Club, and he pays his people to read. And, and I, and I think that's genius. You wanna, yeah, and if you want to 10x a company, you really have got to 10x the knowledge, not just of yourself, but everybody else in the firm. Otherwise, you leave everybody behind and outgrowing your, your team is one of the big barriers and one of the most painful things because now you're facing having to let go some of your early friends. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I was getting back to that point about paying people to read. I'm a passionate believer in that idea. I've got some clients this year that, that they've done that. We put together a curriculum for them and agreed to give it to them. But all they had to do is, is devote 20 minutes a day to their people to be able to read. You got it. And, but it's hard. And these it's people hard. had never read a book <laughs> prior to this right. about sales or marketing. And this year they've read 11. Yeah, that's, that's spectacular. That's just wondering why more companies, managers don't, uh, don't do that. Well, because they don't themselves. Ah, well, that's a good point. Uh, which, by the way, to me, that's, you know, I put it in my trend column for 2016. I'm right now working on my trend column for 2017. But uh, for 2016, and I, I think there was some progress made, I, I said, this is the year that we get rid of the word manager. And that's particularly in sales. You know, nobody needs or wants a sales manager. What they need is a sales coach. And that's the significant change we're seeing is this pivot from people being managers to coaches. And in fact, one of the top five business books of this year that I named in my column that just came out a couple of days ago in Fortune was this book by Michael Stanier called yeah, The Coaching, Coaching Habit. Habit. Yeah, and it's a spectacular book. Spectacular book. Yeah, he was a yeah. guest on my show as well. Yeah, I love oh, the good. book. Well, but that that's the key. And I remember, you know, when we were involved with, uh, you know, doing tours of Dell and his and Michael's top, um, you know, VP of sales said the key metric is windshield time. Uh, mm -hmm. All of the sales, they still call the managers, but they needed to spend at least 30 hours a week coaching. And I think that's one of the reasons why they were able to scale up to 50 billion, now 75. Well, it seems that a ton of books been written this last year on, on coaching. Yes. But what still seems to be sort of this, this problem is this conundrum is that given the advent of so much availability, so much data, that increasingly senior executives are looking for the frontline managers to sort of be metrics jockeys. I mean, yeah, they give lip service to coaching, but you know, they're finding you know more and more of their time is being spent tabulating data and reporting on it and providing it to senior management. Yeah, and that's and by the way, I th that's where I see the role. You know, marketers are analytics, salespeople are relationship folks, and we. You know, the one thing salespeople are great at is is talking, or they should be, mm -hmm. and, and listening. 
And so one of the things, one of those basic habits, you know, besides having a one hour marketing meeting and making your relationship list and working that list, uh, we're real big on this idea that uh, whatever your distribution channel is, sales rep, sales Mm -hmm. team, that they need to call in every day and report what they've heard. You know, uh, GE ended up calling it QMI, Quick Market Intelligence. Mm-hmm. But it was some that Jimmy Colano, right there in Boulder, Colorado, who built the largest one-day seminar company in the world before he sold it to John Malone at TCI 15, 16 years ago, or maybe 20 now, um, is, you know, I was an independent speaker like 500 others. And if we wanted paid that day, Andy, we had to go find a payphone. I remember I'd be in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, doing a total quality management gig. And at the end of that, I had to call in and report first what the numbers were, you know, how many people Mm -hmm. were there. It was kind of a check and balance on operations. And more importantly, you know, there's only two kinds of salespeople, winners and whiners. (laughs) And, you know, you're trying to sort out who are the ones who only whine and versus the winners who've got barriers, and it was a chance for us every day to report what was working and not working in the field, what we were hearing from customers. And they had they Jimmy really had the mentality that the goal of the rest of the company was to figure out how to get those barriers out of the way of us who are in the field delivering and making sales. Uh, the other thing we did was we collected massive amounts of intel. I mean, your sales uh, people are your CIA. They're your mm-hmm. intelligence agency. And we, there were often competitors having workshops in the same hotel next door. And we were just expected to go next door and write down the name of the workshop and who the speaker was and how many seats were in the room. Yeah. And all of that intel flowed back to Boulder and Jimmy could, could see trends before others could. He could even guess the, how well his competitors were doing, even though they were private companies like he was. And so that habit of because salespeople, as you know, they have this flush mechanism in their brain where, you know, the only way they maintain sanity is to flush their brain every night. And if you don't capture that and, and verbally, they're not going to write a report. They really are not. Uh, in fact, that's your threat. If you don't report daily, you've got to write, <laughs> write a report. report. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and, and the great news is with today's technologies, they can call in. And leave a voice message, and then the technology converts it to text. Yep. And you've got your report anyway. Yeah. Perfect. So, Vern, we've got a few minutes left on the show. This is the last segment of the show. I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests. All right. And the first one's sort of a hypothetical scenario where you've just been hired as, and I didn't write this specifically for you, but you're probably better, <laughs> better prepared to answer it than anybody else, is just been hired as VP of sales by a company whose sales have stalled out. Time to do a reset, turnaround. What two things could you do your first week on the job that would have the biggest impact? Well, I take a page from Sam Palmasano. You know, he was kind enough mm-hmm. Andy, to endorse my second book. And, you know, he ended up being CEO of IBM, right. doubled their market cap during the recession. He was given a similar division that sales had stalled. And so the first thing he did is he identified what would, who would be the next best customer? Because one of the challenges with salespeople, they'll just go out and call on anybody they can. Uh, and he said, I, my, my analysis is that it would be customers 
who are rabid users of EMC's certain suite of products, they would most want our complementary suite of products. Mm -hmm. Then he went further and he identified the top 100 customers of EMC. And then he used one of the most important management tools ever invented. Bill Gates called it one of the best. And that was a whiteboard. And on this whiteboard, he wrote the names of these hundred customers. And then he got on a daily global sales call. And his one question is, you know, who'd you get to on the list? And his question the next day was, who'd you get to on the list? And they, it was like the Regis McKenna, make your list and work it Mm -hmm. every week. And if a salesperson said, hey, you know, Sam, nobody on the list, but I've got a hot deal over here. He's like, look, I don't think you heard me. That's the list. And so I would identify a list, whether it's a certain buyer persona, uh, the kind of work that Adele does, Rivera, Mm -hmm. or, you know, actually specific list of companies. And then I would make sure that we're pounding that list every day until it's exhausted. And that's that's how I would get sales going okay. again. And the key point there, too, is I love the words, the next best customer, you not bet. just the next customer. Perfect. You got it. Okay, four quick questions for you. Rapid fire, give me one-word answers or elaborate. If you wish, the first one is when you, Vern, are out selling your services, what's your most powerful sales attribute? Um, that we're teaching our emotional benefit, not the logical. Okay. People buy through the heart. Yep. Who's your sales role model? Um, you know, my dad, he's the one who taught me sales and that's what he did. Excellent. So one book doesn't have to be a sales book, but one book other than your own that every salesperson should read. Yeah. Look, I just read, I'd read everything Neil Rackham wrote. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, but you know, I, I like, I like the sales, uh, 3.0, um, uh, work. And I just went blank on the guy's name. Um, it's too late here in Barcelona. <laughs> That's okay. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll put it down. We'll get it in the show notes. Yeah, you got it. All right. So, it. last question: What music is on your playlist right now? You know what? We are absolutely Pentatonix fans. Oh, you are. Okay. You know? Yeah, and their Christmas album, you know, was one of the few that went platinum, and we went to go see them, and so we've been literally listening to them today. Excellent. Well, that's a good choice. Yeah, I think they have a. Actually, we're recording this in December. Uh, there's I have a TV special coming up here in the States, so um, you'll be able to stream it. Well, Vern, thanks for being on the show. Tell people how they can find out more about you and connect with you. Um, scalingup.com. Okay. That's simple. Scalingup.com. Yeah, we've got it. We've got a free chapter there and one on this one-page personal plan, and all of our tools are there for free, and they can sign up for my Thursday Weekly Insight. So uh, it's all there at scalingup.com. Excellent. Well, again, thank you for being on the show, and friends, thank you for spending the time with us today. Remember, make it a habit to deliberately learn something new every day to help you accelerate your success. And easy way to do that is join my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Vern Harnish, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks again for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.